Well, uh, very good morning. Uh, welcome uh, to Redeemer. My name's Rachel. Uh, I'm part of the um, Central Chorlton Missional Community, and I'm going to be leading us through the service this morning. Um, a very warm welcome uh, to you if you are a guest with us this morning, if it's uh, your first time. It's lovely to see you, uh, to see you here. Uh, welcome if you're joining us online. Uh, it's great that you're able to join with us, and we would uh, very much like to see you in person if the time or uh, opportunity uh, allows that. Um, we, our tagline here at Redeemer is we are a gospel-formed family on mission. Uh, that means we are uh, centered on the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ and what he did when he came to earth uh, to die, to rescue us, uh, to bring us back to himself. We are a family, so that means we love each other, we're in each other's lives, we uh, care for each other, we challenge each other, we correct each other, um, and we're on mission, which means we are out there taking this good news about Jesus Christ to the people around us, uh, to our uh, town and our city. Uh, if you would like to know a little bit oh, uh, more about that, um, you can get in touch with us. Um, our website here, redeemer.mcr.com forward slash connect, is a way to uh, leave us your details and we will send you a weekly email so you can know about things that are going on on a Sunday and what's going on in the life of the church as well. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 100 and it says this. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the beautiful sunshine, for this place to meet. We thank you for bringing us together. And we pray that as we meet, we would meet with you, that we would hear from you, that we would sing to you, that we would worship you, and that we would leave here with hearts more full, knowing who you are and loving you more as you deserve. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. These are the days of your servant Moses, righteousness being restored. Though these are days of great trials, of famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice of the Right in the world, and we are the laborers. In 
you. Do take your seats. Well done if you knew the words and could sing along when the te technical failed us. I do apologise about that. Oh, there they all were, the words we were missing. Maybe it's uh, We've gone all the way back to the beginning. Anyway, we'll press on. Um, so we just sang to our returning Lord, Jesus, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, coming riding on the clouds in the year of victory. And I don't know about you, but that thought fills me with slight dread that I may one day have to face the Lord, that he is coming and I will face him and he will know all the things that I did in secret and out there uh, for everyone to see. And I think if we know that, then that can we can, we can be honest with ourselves and know that we haven't lived it the way that the Lord has called us to, to love him with all of our hearts and minds and souls and to love our neighbours ourselves and we uh, have put other things before him. And so part of the Christian life is confession and that's what we do here every week. We come before the Lord in a time of relative quiet um, to tell him of the things that we have done, the ways that we have lived that have not lived up to what he has called us to. Um, and so we do that now. If you are used to that, then you may pray uh, silently. If not, there are some words coming up, hopefully on the screen there that may help you to pray along with um, and you can you can say those words to the Lord as we bring the things uh, to him uh, when we've had a few moments of quiet bearing in mind the children um, we're going to have a, a song of confession and we're going to do that remaining seated so let's pray
Well, the wonderful assurance we have is that when we come to the Lord and confess and we accept Jesus into our lives, we hear this beautiful, wonderful, very simple, but very profound word from Romans 8 that says, for there is now no for, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is it. He has borne our sins. He had died, rose again. And if we accept him into our hearts, accept what he has done for us, then we are forgiven. And it doesn't get any more wonderful than that. What an incredible assurance of forgiveness we have from our Lord Jesus. Now, the kids have been very quiet, or maybe I'm just deaf to it now. But it's time for you guys to go to your kids club. So we have a kids work here where uh, the children go out uh, to their group and they learn about Jesus in a way that is appropriate to them and for their age and have fun and snacks and uh, it's brilliant. Um, so why don't uh, we pray for them? Kids, do you want to come down? Do you want to all come here at the front and I'll pray for you? Let's go. Come on, Colin, you can come down. All of my children, where's my uh, wild child? Missing. Hmm. Hello. Hi. Right, so shall we pray? What do we do when we pray? We put our hands together to stop us from fidgeting, don't we? Yes, you can't. No, it's okay. We close our eyes. That helps us to concentrate. And we say, dear God, we say, thank you so much for our kids club. Thank you that we get to have fun. Thank you that we get to learn about Jesus. Thank you for the people that look after us. Thank you for snacks and coloring and for all the wonderful things we will do. And we pray that we would learn about Jesus and how much he loves us and how much we want to love him. Amen. Great. Well, have a lovely time, guys. Off you go. For everybody else, you can refill your uh, tea and coffee, uh, and we'll join back in a
So while we uh, uh, refilled our coffee, it's great to see you back. Um, we always try and find out something that's going on in the life of the church. Uh, we don't just meet on a Sunday, we meet all during the week uh, and we're in and out of each other's lives. And uh, one thing that's coming up, as you may know, next Sunday is Easter. So a week tomorrow uh, is the bank holiday Monday, Easter Monday. And the um, Royal Oak here um, are having an Easter fun day. So the information's on there. It's from two till six. Um, if you would like to come along, that would be fantastic. If you would like to help out, that would be also fantastic. You can speak to Greg, you can speak to me about ways that we're gonna be uh, helping out uh, run the event at the Royal Oak here. Um, if you see the flyer online, you could like it, share it, Insta, whatever the kids are using these days. You could do that, that would be great to get it out there. Um, so lots of people know and lots of people come. Um, uh, it's a great way, Easter is one of the things that, a great way to share our Christian faith with people in a sort of really accessible way because lots of people celebrate Easter with chocolate eggs and Easter bunny and that sort of thing. So you know, people are aware of the celebration but obviously finding out uh, about what real Easter is about then, uh, then that would be great. And so yeah, helping out and coming along would be fantastic to the Easter fun day to support the Royal Oak and to, uh, to uh, support and uh, look out for our community. The other thing is um, thinking about giving. Now, we do not like to talk about money because we are British and that is very uncomfortable. Uh, but giving money is a really important way of sharing our faith, of worshipping, of um, committing our lives to the Lord. Um, and so we wanted to spend a minute or two thinking about the ways that giving is actually worship. We're going to be talking about worship as well. Um, so when you give money, or your time, uh, you sacrificing something that you maybe would already have bought, or already have done, to give that to the Lord in all sorts of various ways, whether that be in uh, monetary-wise, we give to um, a church in Italy uh, to support the growing church, to support the spreading of the gospel across the world. Um, and if you give money as well, you support this. Everything you see, the equipment, the lights, the music, Greg, uh, the laptop, the, way, the time he has to prepare the sermon, all those things are ways that the, we use the money that you give to support um, the gospel work here in Chorlton and uh, across Manchester. And that is a form of worship. That is a sacrifice that we make, that we give uh, to the church and to the Lord. Um, and so if you would like to find out more about giving, you would like to give more than you already do, then you can speak to me, you can speak to Greg, uh, and we would be delighted to find out ways that we can uh, help and support you to make those sacrifices and to make those, uh, to make the giving um, a form of worship. Now, obviously, that goes with a condition that we don't just want you for your money, we're delighted that you're here, and obviously, if uh, financially, then things are difficult for you, then we don't want you to feel like that's a, a, you know, a burden, but it is something that we do as worship, and like I said, if you need to talk to me or Greg, then we'd be delighted to, to talk to you about that. So, we are moving on and we are having our Bible reading. We're continuing our uh, sermon series in Isaiah. And if you have a Bible, that's great, we're at Isaiah 44. If you have one of these um, uh, Isaiah books that's got all the passages helpfully separated out into sermon uh, sections for you, um, if you would like one, they're on the back. Uh, maybe Claire, if you could you possibly uh, give them out if anybody would like uh, one of these. You can take one home. Uh, you can keep it. Uh, it's got all there and it's got some sections for notes if you wanted to, uh, to make some notes as we go along as well. So we are on page 46 in these uh, books, uh, Isaiah 44. Uh, verses 6 at 28, and I'm going to read that. It says that's this. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first 
and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing and the things they treasure are worthless. Who would speak up for them? Who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used for fuel, as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. And over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their mind closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think or has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel, I even break bre baked bread over its coals, I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I made you. You are my servant. I will not forget you. I've swept away your offences like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says, your redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and, turns, into and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited, of the town of Judah they shall be rebuilt, 
and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Let's pray as Greg comes up to speak these words to us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your incredible word. Thank you for the description we have of you here. And we pray that as we read these words, as we hear them preached from Greg, that they would go deep into our hearts, that we would truly know that you are the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth, that we would know you and love you more deeply from the words that you speak to us. Please be with Greg, help him to be bold and wise as he speaks, and let us all love you more um, as we hear these words together. Amen. Well, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of verses there, a lot of words there, and maybe a lot of things you're like, what in the world does that mean? And I, I may not be able to answer every single question, but we will get to the heart of those verses there. We've been going through this series in Isaiah for a bit, um, and we have, I think, probably maybe six or so weeks still to go. So um, hopefully, as we kind of look at the whole thing over the whole, you might be like, oh, maybe these 16 chapters in Isaiah that are actually really difficult to understand by themselves, maybe by the end of it, I might have an idea. Um, but really, the point of this week, the whole thing we're going to look at this week is about this idea of glory. Uh, it's fitting, it's Palm Sunday, it's when Jesus is kind of um, triumphantly enters Jerusalem as a celebration of that day. Next week is, is uh, Easter, of course. But this week, we're going to talk all about glory. Now, glory is uh, what we see as most beautiful, what deserves our time and attention and resources. It's what is, whatever is most impressive in your life, that's the thing that's glorious. Now, we may not say oh, I find this thing glorious. Um, but we might, you know, be shouting and singing and, you know, hugging strangers at a football match. You know, that's a glorious kind of thing. Um, unless your team loses, then it's very not glorious. Wherever the opposite of glorious, inglorious, is that a word? I don't think so. Um, now, but the, so we, we like that glory thing, but we also, we have a problem with glory. Because <clears throat> on one side, we seek after it because it's, it's attractive. It's something that we want. We're attracted to it in kind of its, all of its ways. And we find that maybe through our jobs and getting promoted or uh, you know, having families. A family can be glorious. Um, serving other people can be a glorious thing because you feel good. Doing big things, having dreams, all those kinds of things. They all have a pull of glory. Uh, the idea of like, if this thing happens, then I know there's meaning in this world. Or then I feel significant. There's a significance attached to that. There's meaning to be found. And we're always on that quest for significance. Like, do I matter? Well, I'm not sure if I matter, but here's how I will prove it. I'm going to prove it either to myself or to other people or both. Now, our problem is that in that kind of search for glory, the reason why we search after so much is because we're always surrounded by our like, crippling insignificance. Like, really, when you think about it, we, in our individual lives, really don't matter to too many people. Hopefully, they matter to a lot. But when you think about it, man, do I really even matter at all? So many parts of our life tell us we don't matter, so we have to kind of forge ahead and create this feeling of, of significance, of meaning. So we have that. The other problem we have with glory is that we know it's not really good to chase after it on its own. Like no one wants to be known as like a glory seeker. That's just kind of like a selfish, self-centered kind of life. That's how we get into situations where politicians care more about themselves and the people they're supposed to serve. That's how we get into situations where the church is more about abusing and using people than it is about serving and, and, and renewing people. That's the path to self-centeredness is a path of finding glory for yourself. 
So now we're in this conundrum. We want glory. We want to seek after it. We kind of, we need it. We have that pull. But seeking after it in itself is not a good thing either. It doesn't really lead to glory. So what are we to do? There's a drive inside that seeks it, but seeking it ruins it. That sounds tragic. And maybe, you know, that's where our human story ends. And then that's kind of how we have to, that's the best thing we could do is pull those pieces together. But there's something incomplete there. And that's not where the Christian story ends. That's not where the Bible ends in its story. Without God involved, we are given desires that can never be met. We'll always have that pull for something that will never be met. And with glory, it works out with this way. What we learn in the Bible is that Jesus fulfills your need for glory, but not in the way that you might first think. He does in this kind of subversive way. He fulfills that need for glory that we have, that every human has, but not in the way that we might think because the path to glory, to participating it, to enjoying it, to getting some aspect of it, isn't like seeking after it and gaining it. It's actually surrendering. And that's not something that feels glorious in itself, to surrender to something. When we surrender to the Lord of glory, because that's who he is, that's what he has, we get to experience his glory. So now that means our desires that were previously unmet, they get to find a home. They get to find a home in something that is glorious, that can give us that glory that we want, that meaning, that significance. And this glory, that kind of glory, instead of turning us into these horrible, like self-centered glory seekers out to get whatever we want for ourselves, that kind of glory from God renews us and allows us to, to build other people up as well as ourselves. It gives us a song to sing. So today, being Palm Sunday, is when we, um, get one of the days where we get to celebrate Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, the way that the people are acting as Jesus comes into Jerusalem is like, the, um, like uh, showering a king with praises as he's returning victoriously from battle. People are throwing their cloaks across the road. They're putting palm fronds around the road. And Jesus on a donkey, which seems kind of like, oh, it's like a meek and mild, humble donkey. No, that's, how, that's how kings return from battle. It's like a battle-like vehicle, like a tank or something like that. He's, re- he's on this donkey returning from battle. Um, of course, that, well, that's a symbol of glory, like rightly recognized and rightly celebrated, but it's like less than a week later. And those same people who are praising Jesus and telling him how amazing he is are saying, oh, yeah, you should probably kill that guy instead of this other guy. Um, so we're very kind of fickle people. But at least for a moment, Palm Sunday is a story of getting a glimpse of, of glory. And we get a glimpse of glory in this section of Isaiah as well, uh, of what it really is of what we choose instead of real glory, and even despite all that, how we can still participate in God's glory. So here's a little bit of where we're going. The three main points we're going to look at today is how God is glorious, how we exchange God's glory, and then how even though we do that, how we still get to, uh, to display God's glory. Now, if I'm going through here and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Or you said words I don't understand, or I would like to hear more about this. You can go to that website. It's anonymous, redeemerms.com slash ask. And um, I will hopefully answer whatever kind of questions or bring up whatever kind of stuff you're interested in as we go along. Um, Well, let's start with this first point. The first thing, God is glorious. God and Isaiah, in these first verses here, uh, starting there in verse 6 to verse 8, tells us who God is. And this is God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. This is basically kind of God telling us. Like, this is who I am, people. Here's like three short verses on who I am. Before anything, God introduces himself as, um, and if you have your Bible, open it or, or whatever page it might be in your Isaiah book. Um, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. Before he talks about anything else about how amazing and glorious he is, he's defining himself as God's people's king, as a king, as a redeemer. It's a very relational thing. He didn't say, 
First, I mean, he does say, I'm the Lord Almighty. He doesn't start with the Lord Almighty, like I'm the sovereign, most powerful God of everything. He starts with, I'm your king. I'm your leader. I'm the guy who's supposed to lead you. So it's just a kind of personal identification with his people. And then we get a list, right? He's almighty. There's nothing more powerful than God. He's the first and the last. That means uh, he's infinite. Nobody here has ever been before God. Nobody here will ever be after him. God's this infinite kind of being that we are unlike. There's no God other than him. And he challenges anyone out there. Say, who, who's like me? You, you, like, who, who do you think is actually like me? Who out there has created a people for himself? Nobody else has. And then he also he calls himself the rock, uh, which is a strong, a strong foundation that we get to go to when in trouble. That's, God being a rock is good news for people who need something strong to build on. Now, even in this, we're not going to spend loads of time there. There's three verses there. That kind of um, overwhelming, cosmic, everlasting glory, when we see it rightly, it's kind of, that's overwhelming. It's kind of scary. But God doesn't use that kind of infinite power so that we would be afraid of him. He calls us, he calls the, the king. He's there to lead us, to use that power in, in a good way. And he's a good king to serve his people, not in a way that he's trying to leech from his people. And he tells us to not be afraid. Not only to not be afraid of him, but also to not be afraid of whatever else might come. So because God is this most powerful being, that means instead of us being afraid of him, we get to not be afraid. Basically, uh, the logic is if God is God and there is only one God and he's the only one, then anything at best is just a pretender. Anything at best just like kind of comes in the name of something being powerful but really isn't as powerful as God is. So that means whatever comes against you, whatever it is, whoever it is, whatever, when you think of like, what is against me? And you're thinking, oh, that person at work or, you know, my boss or rising housing prices, whatever the kind of thing might be, whatever is coming against you, there is no way that that person, that that thing is stronger than God. Now, it may mean you can't buy a house or, you know, fuel prices are crazy, so you have to turn down the heating. That, that might be a thing. Um, but there's no way that there's, whatever it is that you're up against, there's no way that God is less powerful than that. Is that thing eternal? Is it almighty? Did it create a people for itself? Only God has done those things. And anything at best out there is just a pretender. And in these kind of few verses, we get this quick glimpse before we get into the rest of the end of this chapter here, a quick glimpse of glory, of, of who it comes from. It comes from him, according to him, and what it's all about. Now, I have, I have an aunt who uh, can sometimes get scared or overwhelmed of big things, and I found this out early on in my life because I would like make my eyes really big and she'd be totally freaked out and have to leave the room. Um, so I use that all the time. Anytime we're in normal conversation, I just make my eyes really massive. She's like, I can't do that. And she'd have to leave. Um, so, but one other thing she's really afraid of is the ocean. Uh, now this is funny because her, um, her and her husband, my aunt and uncle, they were like a really fun family and they had, they were really well off money wise. So they had the cool house. They always had boats. They all those things, but they would take me, me and my brother out on boats all the time. And this is my aunt, who's afraid of like big, overwhelming things. In the middle of an ocean, we're driving out to where you don't see any land at all. It's just water all over the place. And she was always caught between enjoying the time with people there, like out on the ocean and the boat, but not really being able to look at the ocean because she'd be completely freaked out. And she had to like go in the cabin and like hang out there for 30 minutes and come like kind of slowly emerge again. So she's caught between something that was really fun and happy, but also something that was overwhelming and scary for her. Like all the time. Anytime we went on, I thought it was hilarious. She was probably hating life. I don't know why she even chose to go out there. But of course, and then I'm like harassing her with my eyes at the same time. 
But <laughs> so I did not help at all. Well, I was 10, okay. Um, well, that's the kind of life we live uh, if we don't get these three verses, I think. Because when we go through life, we'll always have situations that will make us happy and enjoyable, and we'll always have situations that will be really overwhelming and scary. Sometimes it's the exact same situation that's enjoyable and overwhelming. That's really fun, but also something that you can't like really wrap your head or mind around. But when we're happy and when we're overwhelmed and when we see, when we truly see that God actually is this God that he's talking about in these three verses that we're not spending nearly enough time on, then the worst that we face are pretenders. So when we are overwhelmed, the, we, the worst that we can face is a pretender. And hopefully that could take down that notch of overwhelm, take us down a notch or two of that overwhelming kind of feeling. And sometimes that's all we need. Sometimes when we're in that kind of overwhelming mode, we just need a notch or two to lower us a little bit and to like set us right, then we can go on the right path for that day. And sometimes we need to do that kind of thought process over and over again because the thing might be really overwhelming. But once we see who God is and how powerful and how massive and how everlasting and how he's glorious, then that sets everything right in the right frame. It tells us how, we're, how we can live. So God shows us who he is, that he's glorious. And if you need something good and glorious in your life, then that's really good news. Because this God is talking to us. Even right now as we're reading these words, he set these words up so that we could hear these words and we could understand it. That's really good news. I know I need that in my life. But just because something is true doesn't really mean we're going to act like that all the time, right? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if that's a thing for you. It's definitely a thing for me. Just because something's true doesn't mean I'm always going to act as if that's true. Like, I know I should eat healthy, and I also know I want a pizza, so I'll eat that pizza. They're like, oh, I know it's bad for me, but I don't really care. You know, we, we, we have all those kinds of things. Um, but the bulk of the sermon, unfortunately, and it's kind of maybe bad news as we kind of go around, the bulk of the sermon is how we try and live outside of God's glory. It's a little bit like, um, you know, the films where there's a cool party and like people are hanging out and people are having fun and all of a sudden out of nowhere, like the wrong people enter the room and it's like that record scratch and everyone looks and it's quiet and like all, some, somehow like magically all the music ties down, it's completely quiet and people are like, Ooh, and they slowly like back away and they don't want to be part of that. This is what's going on in verse nine because, oh, God is glorious. He's amazing. And then there's this massive switch. All those who make idols are nothing. Like, where is, this, where is that coming from? And the things they treasure are worthless. Like, what? This, is, this does not sound good. What is happening here? And it just gets worse and worse. And what we have here is actually God kind of sarcastically making fun of the way that we live, like our, our kind of unhealthy spiritual lives. And what we do is we have that great image of glory, but what we do instead, because we don't always act as if the things are true or true for in our lives, we exchange that glory. And so we get that jarring change from verse 8 to verse 9. All those who make idols and all the rest of this stuff. See, an idol is one of those pretender gods that we just talked about. All those pretenders, all those fakes out there. Uh, and here we learn that these pretend gods are nothing, but more importantly, um, those who make them and spend attention on them are nothing as well. Like verse 9 doesn't say idols are nothing. It says all, the, all who make idols are nothing. Those who spend their time, their money, attention on anything else other than God, that, that makes us nothing. It makes us worthless. And what they hold close to them is nothing as well. Uh, the things that they treasure, those things are worthless too. So those who spend their, um, their time, their money, their attention on anything else other than God, that makes us nothing. What they hold close to them is nothing. Why? Because these idols can't do anything for them. These idols are blind. These idols are ignorant. These idols can't speak. 
They don't understand. They have no power. And this is God speaking to his people. This isn't like talking about, oh, all the baddies out there, all these other nations, or all these people that we want to like paint with a brush and say, all these, these are the type of people who are horrible. This is God speaking to his people. These are words for us. And this, is, this, is not a, um, this is a great sermon for that other person. This is a great sermon for us. We all need to hear it. We exchange that glory we can find in God with anything else. We know God's glory. If you've been around the church for a little bit, you know a little bit of what it's like. And then yet yeah, we still exchange it. And when we do that, in that exchange, we give away everything and we profit nothing. We become nothing. And we're going to get into the absurdity of some of this kind of empty spiritual life. But first, let's not miss out on what's going on in verse 9. That when we worship other thing, other, anything other than God, not only do we become nothing, but our desires become worthless. What we value, the things that, that we treasure, um, cease to have meaning as well. The things they treasure are worthless. Our desires get corrupted when we exchange God's glory for anything else. Now, uh, there's two really kind of, when you read it, it's like, this is kind of funny. It's hilarious. It's like, um, I, I love it when God gets sarcastic. I don't know. I love good sarcastic humor. Um, and then it's like, oh, wait, that's about me. Uh, it's not so great. But you have this, uh, this blacksmith who makes a wannabe God, and you have this carpenter that makes a wannabe God. Um, the blacksmith, he's, he's trying to do it out of his own strength, and eventually he just kind of gets tired and, and like fiddles out. The carpenter takes time to craft something in his own image. He's measuring it. He's gathering the materials, cutting it right, doing all the things. Um, uh, and he makes some of the materials for, for his food. He makes a fire out of it, bakes some bread. Ain't nothing wrong with some bread. That's all right. Um, but then he also makes it something that he's going to worship. So you have the blacksmith and the carpenter. Are two very interesting, and these are like really vivid images of how we exchange God's glory for something less. Let's start with that blacksmith um, uh, metaphor. I think the, the thing that this made me first think of was like a career. It was like a job, something you spend a lot of time in. I mean, a blacksmith is skilled. They, uh, he has a lot of experience. He's probably had, he's gone through an apprenticeship. He's seen someone do the thing, and now he's pouring his life into this thing. And what's it doing? It's just giving him exhaustion. It's not giving him life. It's taking life from him. Instead of the job serving him and benefiting him, now he's trying to serve the job and, and trying to benefit the job. Now, this is beyond being a good kind of servant-hearted employee. This is when your job becomes uh, something more, and instead of it serving you, now you're serving it. Anyone can do that. Probably people who are in ministry most likely do that more than anyone else. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I feel like I'm serving this job more than it's serving me. Surely you have. But this isn't because you have a bad boss or because you have like bad working conditions. This is on you because you've done this. You've, you've exchanged this thing. Because what was a career now becomes an identity. And that's a bad switch because you never get anything out of that. It ends up uh, worthless. You're looking for it for worth. You're looking for it to provide, provide hope, but it can't. Actually, what it really gives is worries, right? No one goes to sleep thinking, ah. Oh, well, I mean, maybe sometimes. Like, I just love my job, and it sets me at ease. Like, the thing that you think about when you go to bed, if you are in a you know, career that you care a lot about, you spend a lot of time in, you go to bed worried about that career. That, that changes your, your emotional life. And weariness comes when we exchange God's glory for something less. It's just what happens. It's a never-ending, exhausting workout to try and get the glory out of a job that you can never get. Believe me, I know. As a minister, I know. Like, this is never going to give me the thing that I can really find in Jesus. And at the end of verse 11 says, uh, the, the scary part, eventually this road leads to terror, leads to shame. So we, ha we have that, that, um, that blacksmith image. And then the next image we have is that of 
this carpenter who's like very precise. He's taking his time to measure. He's uh, gathering materials. He's shaping the thing. With some of the materials, he makes a god. With other parts of the materials, he makes a fire, does a bit of baking, does a bit of cooking. Uh, this is another kind of absurd, sarcastic, cynical take from God. This is what we do. I, th- I feel like this is a lot like materialism in our lives or consumerism. If I just have enough stuff or if I just have enough of the right stuff, then I'll be good. And I think that is, I mean, I know that's true throughout the country, but I feel like that's, that's a big Trollton thing, I think. And maybe it's just a big me thing and I'm putting it on Trollton. But I think maybe some of you guys are probably in the same boat with me. When you daydream about like the best home furnishings, the best car, the best house, maybe not the best, but like the best, next best for you. You're like, oh, maybe I'm not like that person, but oh, I could see this. And you're thinking about it. You know, you're, now Google knows exactly which ads to serve you because you've been searching for it forever. You're like, wow, hmm, all right, I'll click on that. Now you've clicked on the ad. You could have just seen that thing forever. No, the, um, but it, it occupies your brain and you, and you go to sleep and you think about it. Now there's times to do that. When you're moving into a new house, obviously you're going to be thinking about that more. And that's, it's not like we shouldn't think about houses and that we shouldn't think about stuff. I think that's fine. But where does that come in like, the level of importance? Where does it come as far as what we're putting, are we trying to get more out of that than we should? Are we trying to squeeze a stone, trying to get something, trying to get water from it? These things really, what they can do um, is give us anxiety because they lead us to comparison, they lead us to worry again, uh, they, they stop us from connecting to other people because now there's like this mountain of stuff. Either you're trying to uphold this stuff or you see, oh, those are the kinds of people that take those kind of holidays or live in that kind of house or that kind of life. Or, and I'm not that kind of person. I'm a person who takes these kind of holidays or this kind of life. This is what class difference feeds off of. And, and we separate ourselves because of that. We draw a line between people we'll have a relationship with or those we won't because of this thing, that, the problem we have with materialism. <laughs> And when debt becomes a really heavy burden, when you have credit card bills because of this, like just the stuff that you built, that you bought in your life, if you're trying to live outside your means, and in Charlton, you will always find someone above your means to kind of compare yourself to. It will be easy to find those kinds of people and make you jealous and makes you envious. That's not a way to enjoy life. But we think we have a problem with the rat race, but we invented that thing, right? Like we're the ones who invented that thing. If we have a problem with it, like let's just get off it. I mean, for myself, I have never had such a pull to want to own my own house more than when I started living here. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. Some are good, some are not so good. Uh, some people are able to afford that, and we're not right now. But why? the question isn't about owning a house or not owning a house. The question is, why would something like owning a house be so important for me? What do I see in there? And there I see security, and there I see like rootedness, and there I see like all sorts of things, hopes, all sorts of things that a house can't give me. It's just walls and roofs and things. And that's great to own. It's great. If you can, that's fantastic. But there's something that I'm trying to get out of that house that a house will never be able to give me. And worshiping at that altar of consumerism, my theological belief is if I just have that, I'll be okay. I'll be good. I'll be secure. I'll have my place in this world. I'll be, kind of, I'll be set. Basically, praying for a house is kind of like a way for me to say, God, won't you give me something so that I don't have to trust you anymore? How many of our prayers are like that? God, won't you, won't you give me this thing so I don't have to live in like a trusting relationship for you to come through for me anymore? So I don't have to think about my future. Just give me this thing so I, I kind of like put you back in that box and take you out on Sundays for a couple hours. I don't want to be, this is my heart. This isn't like people who own houses. I know people bought, this, I, I love the idea of people buying houses and we should rightly celebrate that. This is not dogging on the Lehans or the, or the Horans or anybody. We've, but uh, it's about our hearts and, and how we come to it. And here's the thing with us as humans. We become what we worship, whatever it is. Whatever it is, we become what we worship. 
Verse 18 says, they know nothing. They understand nothing. What's the they there? Are they talking about these fake gods or are they talking about the people who crafted them? Of course, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The idol and the worshiper of the idol, they don't, they don't, and they don't know anything. They understand nothing. Who? The idol or the worshiper? Yes. They can't see. They can't understand. We become what we worship. God doesn't want us to stay stupid. He wants us to see. He wants us to understand. He wants us to live this life as fully alive humans. He wants us to know what this world is about. And of course, he wants us to know who he is. And here's the irony about these these false gods that that we kind of create and don't think about. Um, The irony is that the only reason these gods exist is because of us. We've created them. And they're not out there, these bad things that are out there to get us. Here, these are the things that we've created, and we're putting that stumbling kind of block in front of our own life. Those who make them are nothing, and what they treasure is nothing. Uplifting stuff for Sunday, right? <laughs> I think a way to think about this, about idols, is something like a parent taking a child across the road. Like a, chi- like a parent and, a, and your kid, you just want to go on a walk, or you just want to walk across the road or something like that. Um, you not only want to go on a walk with your kid, but you want to do it in a way that's going to like bind you together. It's like a relational thing. Uh, so you take their hand, holding their hand. I remember when Colin was small, his little tiny, I mean, he's small now, but his little tiny hand, like holding it when he just held my hand all the time. Now he might sometimes, which is a good day when he holds my hand. But, every, but he used to have to always hold my hand. It was his tiny little hand. And this is how God speaks to us. He holds our hand. And, and we talked about this in, in chapter 42, where God has his hand kind of extended out towards us. Uh, it's not only to guide us and protect us, but it's as we're walking to establish that relational connection with us and whatever we do, wherever we go. But there are times where we don't want to hold his hand, just like Colin doesn't want to hold my hand. Um, there are times where we want to run ahead because we want to get freedom. Like, God, you're holding me back. I have to hold your hand. I can actually run faster than what we're walking now. So I'm going to rip my hand away. I'm going to run ahead. I'm going to be free. I'm going to be truly free. But in our freedom, what we've done is we've severed the most important relationship that we have. You can have complete freedom if you want, but it does come at a price, a price of not knowing God. There's times we run ahead. There's also times where we don't want to budge. And I, I mean, if you have ever seen or experienced a toddler who doesn't want to do something, when they're like two and they just go like limp mode and it's like you grab their hand and it's like getting dragged across the road, you look like it's some parent abusing your child as they like grind across the pavement. Um, of course, you don't care at that point. Like, ah, oh, fine, you're just getting crabbed. They, that, we like, we're like that too, but we don't want to budge, right? Uh, we don't want to walk. Uh, we won't walk. You can't make me. No, you can't. Like, I'm done. This is it. I'm not going to move. I'm tired. I don't want to move. But that also means taking our hands out of his. And we don't want to budge. And you can live your life like with, you know, without budging you know, spiritually if you want, but that comes at a price as well. And then there is what I think is the most Christian of idolatries. We rebelliously obey. We, we will walk with, with our parent across the road, but I'm going to hold my hands on my side. You're not going to hold my hand. I'll, I'll look like I'm walking with you, and I'll do all the things. I'll do the movements. I'll move when you move. I'll stop when you stop but my hand is not in yours. It's down by my side because I'm going to do my own thing. That's how we do things in the church. That's really how we do things in the church. We do all the outside stuff without that relational connection, which is the whole reason to do the thing to begin with. We do our own thing inside our hearts while doing good things outside. And the easiest place to hide from God is in a church. That's the easiest place to hide from him. And you can live like that if you want. Though I think of the three options, that surely is the worst because you get like, 
halfway in, halfway out. I mean, if you're gonna run ahead, at least like run ahead. If you're gonna not budge, like at least like just sit on your sofa and not budge. If you're gonna rebelliously obey, that is like the worst way to live. That is, there's nothing really fun that comes from that at all. You can live like that if you want though, and it does come with a price. So running ahead, not budging, rebelliously obeying are all versions of the same thing, worshiping something else other than him. This leaves us as nothing, our desires as nothing. And in the end, verse 11 tells us we're gonna be brought down to terror. God does not, the reason why God is telling us that is so that it won't happen to us, that we won't be like that. But what God does for those of us who are all prone to run ahead, not budge, and rebelliously obey, is he still offers his hand. And in our idol worship, which is what this is happening here, in our idol worship, God still speaks to us. He says, remember these things, my family. That's what Jacob means. That's what Israel means. This is my people. Remember these things, my family. You're mine. I haven't moved on. We try to move on from God, but God will never move on from us. And what we get as those kind of um, hilariously lame idol worshipers is we still get to display God's glory. Those who have exchanged God's glory still get to display it. And it's a jarring change of pace here again from verses 20 to 21. Talk about this, like, no one stops to think, like, what's the deal? Why are you worshiping this thing? Verse 21, God's saying, remember these things, for you're my servant. I've made you. You're my servant. I'm not going to forget you. I know you, I made you. I know the best way for, for you to live. You might try and move on from me, but I'm not moving on. And in verse 22, we find forgiveness. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like a morning mist. Kind of like a very easy way to, to, to sweep away forgiveness, to sweep away our sins. And forgiveness leads to relationship. It's not just forgiveness in itself, but the thing right after that, uh, I've swept away your offense like a cloud, this is verse 22. Your sins like a morning mist, so that's forgiveness there. And the very next thing, return to me, for I've redeemed you. Again, it's that relational connection. God wants us to, to know him, to be involved with him. And isn't this exactly what idol worshipers like ourselves need? For us who run ahead, who won't budge, who are rebelliously obeying, God sweeps away that disobedience and he calls us to draw closer. He's not disgusted. He's not over it. He's not, oh, you've totally worn my patience out. He's never lost interest in you. And what this does is lead to nothing less than the whole world bursting into song. The whole entire creative world bursting into song. God's forgiveness leads to bursting out in song because God's forgiveness is, is a glorious thing. Verse 23 says, sings for joy. Who? Who should sing for joy? You think the people would be there, right? Sing for joy, you heavens. It's like the sky singing for joy. For the Lord has done this. Shout aloud. Who's shouting aloud? The people are shouting aloud here. The earth is shouting aloud. Burst into song, ye mountains, your forests and trees. Why? Because God has redeemed Israel, or redeemed Jacob, his people. He displays his glory in Israel. He displays his glory in his people. And this also tells us how big the vision for the church ought to be. God at work with his people leads to nothing less than all of creation kind of singing along. They go into musical mode and they start singing. And maybe it's like kind of annoying when it happens in, on a screen. It depends if you're into musicals or not. Um, but singing is a kind of joyous overflow of what's going on inside. What God has done in all creation is overjoyed when God works through his people. And this is what we get to display. The last two lines of verse 23, God's redeemed us. He's bought us back. He displays his glory through his people. And this is why being a Christian requires you to be part of a church. See, church is this, a set of relationships that displays God's glory. There's no singular here. It's not like God has redeemed this person. God has redeemed these people. Forgiveness gives to a people. And the, dis, the display of glory comes through a people. There's no individual display of glory here. 
and some of the products here uh, of uh, being a part of a people that display God's glory. And if you're not part of a church in some way, you're missing out on God being at work here. Verse 25 is, um, foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. Basically, false things are shown to be what they are. It's false. Like all those things that like previously maybe we would like chase after. Now, as we're living life in this community that is displaying God's glory, we get to see false things for really what they are, which is a good thing because it saves us from chasing after things that we ought not to chase after. Also, he overthrows the learning of the wise, turns it into nonsense. So prideful people are kind of put rightful, rightfully in their place. Verse 26 says, God rebuilds ruins, which is really good if at any point in that section of idol worship you felt like, ah, I'm a bit of a ruin inside. I'm maybe not like the perfect ordered mansion, I thought, you know, spiritually speaking. If you have any level of ruin inside of you, what God loves to do is rebuild them. He loves to restore them. He's talking about Jerusalem, and yes, that's like physically what will happen as well in the future, but it's not just that. It's a metaphor for what God will actually do. And that means the security we've looked for in other ways, it's here, it's through Him. The meaning and significance we've been seeking is through Him, through His people. That glory that we're attracted to, and rightfully so because God's made us that way, is found in the work of His people. This is what we get to do as a church. You get to participate in, in glory. It's what you get to do. In fact, all of our highest desires, our biggest wants, our biggest needs are found here, through God working through his people. And how is this? Well, it's through what Jesus has done. See, we exchange God's glory for something less. How, how did that forgiveness happen? Well, on the cross, there's an even better exchange, an even bigger exchange. The one where we get to be renewed, even for those who worship idols, uh, is through the one who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It was an entry to a city in the same way that a king would return victoriously from battle. He came into his city for something more than just a renewed city, more than just a renewed government, more than just like a renewed single people who were existing then, but for the beginning of this whole world being renewed. And that begins, that works through his people. The same people that make mountains burst into song because now the glory of the Lord shines through his people. So anything that tries to hold us back, the worst they can be, remember, is some kind of pretender. God will shine his glory through his people. And Jesus, being God, he has all the glory. And in the one act where it was simultaneously glory and its complete opposite, through the cross, he gives to us that we might join him in this glorious life. We get his glory through being redeemed, through surrendering to, to Jesus' glory. And the way of glory isn't seeking after it in like that way that we might think. The way of glory is a path of surrender. We submit our own ways of doing things. We submit our own kind of lame ways after seeking after glory, our own kind of idols that we, we love to worship and set up for ourselves of worshiping at other altars. And we get to be forgiven and we get to be renewed. For those who are renewed, uh, displaying God's glory, we get to sing. And singing, singing is an overflow of that joy that comes from within us, or we will actually literally sing. But more than just the words that come out of our mouth, it's our bodies, um, when you sing, your vocal cords and your body becomes an instrument. It reverberates with, with sound, with, with music, with notes. And that should be a metaphor in how we live our lives, like our, our lives reverberating with this glory that God is putting through us. The parts of us that want to run ahead, we sing them back. The parts of us that don't want to budge, we sing them into action. The parts of us that are rebelliously obeying, we sing them into a deeper relationship with Jesus, who's already singing over us. And part of Jesus' song is celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper together. 
if you have been renewed by Jesus, uh, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be um, a member of Jesus's uh, community. Now, if you haven't yet surrendered and, and haven't yet participated in this renewal, um, that's okay. We're really happy that you're here, but uh, we don't want you to join in with something that you don't actually believe yet. And in a moment, we will eat and drink as we sing together. You have these under your chairs. Um, after Jesus entered Jerusalem, the night before he was going to be killed for our sakes, he gave us a meal to remember him by. And when we're singing in a moment here, and when you eat the bread, we think of his body, burdened to death by our sins, but now resurrected in an eternal body, an actual real body. And when we drink the cup, we think of his blood poured out in death for our sins, which now we actually find forgiveness. And as God's people who get to display his glory, what we do as we do this, as we're singing, as we're continuing worshiping him today and for the rest of our week, we say thank you. We say we return to you. We say, God, give us the joy that we might be able to sing, not just in these words that we're about to say, but also with our lives. God, we thank you that you get to do this. We thank you that um, you do that for whatever reason, beyond my understanding, you choose to do this through your people, through a church that meets in the upstairs of a pub in a, in a neighborhood that, where most people don't really probably think about you very much. Lord, we thank you that you haven't run away from us. Uh, Lord, we're sorry for when we do. When we run ahead, when we won't budge, when we rebelliously obey, all the kind of ways that we try and get around actually like following you and, and, and growing in relationship with you. Lord, we're sorry for that. What we want more of is you. We want, more to, parti- we want to participate more in the glory that you are already at work in displaying through your people here in Charlton and further afield, wherever we live. Lord, for, to be a part of your global community. Lord, you don't aren't doing something just here in Manchester. You're doing something over the entire world. Lord, we thank you that we get to be connected through that in, even uh, in what we're about to do this morning. But God, I pray for all those little moments in our lives, all the things that give us anxiety, that keep us awake, that give us worry, or even things that we are maybe um, far too fond of or expect too much out of. God, would you please gently bring us back into your fold and show us the right way to live that we might be able to display your glory and nothing less. Lord, we pray, we sing, we eat and drink in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise Him, you heavens and all that's above. Praise Him, you angels and heavenly hosts. Let the whole earth praise Him. Praise Him, the sun, moon, and bright shining stars. Praise Him, you heavens and waters and skies.
strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord.
day, happy day, you wash my sin away, oh, happy day, happy day, I'll never be the take your seats. Christina just wanted to have a quick word to the parents, I think, from Kids Club. Hi, guys. Um, don't worry, nothing bad. Just want to warn you, somebody, there's apparently a gender reveal party after church later this afternoon, so somebody has dropped off a load of very nice balloons in a nice, organized, pretty thing. They're hidden behind a bunch of chairs as best we could and a bunch of um, signs, but please, can you keep an eye and make sure the kids stay in here? after the service while we're chatting because if they go out there they're going to see those balloons and that poor party will be destroyed because their balloon organized their pretty balloon display will be ruined and we know it will happen because my kid as well loves balloons so um just for for loving whoever that that family is later today just keep an eye on the kids um yeah thank you yes great thank you so let us let me just pray to close us we say Sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's pray. Keep us close to you, we pray, in every aspect of our daily lives, that we may seek your glory and your honor wherever we are and whatever we do. We pray anticipating your blessing, for we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So people of God, hear these words of blessing. They come from 2 Corinthians. May the grace of Christ which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in response to this blessing, we say, all our problems to the cross of Christ, all our brokenness, all our guilt and shame, and all our hopes. Amen. So, Redeemer, we uh, don't cease to be a church now as our Sunday service is over. We go uh, together as family out into Chalton in the world. We leave with glorious new hearts to serve our community, to serve each other, and to worship the Lord together. Oh, dear. We will uh, see you all uh, next week. Go in peace. Praise Him, you angels in heaven.